Hey guys, welcome to episode 154 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope that you've all had a good two weeks since our last episode, and we are excited to bring you some more true crime. But like always, we first want to thank you for all of your support. And we ask if it wouldn't be too much. If you haven't yet, if you could leave us a review, that would be amazing. You could follow us on social media or you could just tell a friend. Spreading the word about the podcast is really the best thing that you could do for us. So we would appreciate that in any form. I could have said it better. I, I try. I wrote it down so I did it right. <laughs> <laughs> true. If I was going to try It's easier. To, I have yeah, a script. That's very true. <laughs> and it's short and sweet. So without any further ado, John. Are you ready to hear something crazy? Of course. In the winter of 1986, the honeymoon phase of a young professional couple in the greater Los Angeles area was brought to an abrupt halt when one of them was murdered brutally in their condo. Over the decades it took to solve this case, it became clear to each new detective that took it on that this case was not all that it seemed to be, and the murderer had been under their nose the entire time. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The greater Los Angeles area in the 1980s was not a safe place. As the decade continued, violent and property crime soared. There are many factors that experts blame for this rapid and terrifying rise in crime in that specific area of California. And they include the crack epidemic, which led to an increase in gang activity, a widening socioeconomic gap, overpopulation, racial tensions between minorities and the LAPD, you name it, it's been suggested. But in reality, it's most likely a mix of all of those things and more. But what is easy to see now, looking back on things, was that Los Angeles was a powder keg waiting to explode, which it eventually would in 1991, just five years after this case, when Rodney King was savagely beaten by police and deadly rioting followed. It was, to say, the very least, a tumultuous time in the history of Los Angeles. But what made the violence of L.A. so shocking were the communities that surrounded it, as they were some of the most sought-after zip codes in the country, like Beverly Hills. During this time, it was like an invisible curtain fell between the wealthy areas and the poor, and the crime that plagued the city never reached the doorsteps of the privileged and famous. Another one of those sheltered areas was the community of Van Nuys, Worlds away from the chaos that ensued just southeast of them, newlyweds Sherry Rasmussen and John Raton shared a beautiful condo. The couple, although having both attended UCLA, started dating once they had left the university in 1984, and they married a year later in 1985. They had met at a party held by a mutual friend, and it was love at first sight. Friends and family described the romance as a whirlwind, but they had known it was real, and they were crazy about each other. And when John asked Sherry to marry him, she had been elated. By all accounts, the couple was insanely happy, 
They were riding high from the wedding, and they were excited about their future together as two very successful people. John was a mechanical engineer, and Sherry, well, she really was something special. She was beautiful and brilliant, having graduated from nursing school at the age of 19. And by the time she was 27, she had already earned the title of nursing director at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. Her family described her as a go-getter and the glue that held them all together. And really, John was nothing to scoff at either. Besides being a medical engineer, he was very laid back and loved basketball and played a lot to stay in shape. Like that was his thing that he loved to do. They were young, beautiful, well-educated, in love, and all of their friends said they were the kindest, most generous people you could meet. They held the world in their hands. That was until it all crumbled apart on February 24th, 1986. That Monday morning, the couple did not go about their normal schedule. Usually the couple woke up at 7 a.m. and began to get ready for their day. Sherry always left a bit before John because her commute was longer, but really they always went about getting ready together, and they had since they moved in together. But on that day, Sherry woke up with her husband, and she called in sick for work. She was a very responsible person, and she wouldn't have gotten to where she was if she wasn't, but like so many of us, there are times when we just get a little fed up with work BS. Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes you just need to call out. You are not sick, but hey, I am using sick time, you know? Yeah. It's just, it, you know, it's like mental health days, really, if you think about it. Yeah, we've all been there. We, we have to. It counts as a sick day. Sure. There was also like a reason like she was calling out just because she didn't agree with what was happening either at work. So it was kind of like her small act of rebellion. So what was happening was there had been some HR training scheduled for the nurses, and she was supposed to help oversee it, but she didn't think it was useful to them or applied to them. And really what it did was it took them away from everything that they needed to be doing, and it wasn't a proper distribution of resources. So she took a stand and called out, which was a very rare act of rebellion for Sherry. Even just to call out. So for her to do this, it was kind of like she was trying to make a point. I mean, I think when you look at her on the surface so far, I think she's a rule follower, kind of like you. <laughs> yeah. And I think she's just like she's straight lined. It's like this is my responsibility. This is what I have to do every day. And I'm not going to complain about it. Right. So for her to do something out of character like that, you know, it, you know. It was probably worthwhile. Yeah. So when John left for work at 720, Sherry was still in bed. And he didn't want to disturb her. So she had called out at 7 a.m., but then, like, went back to sleep. During the workday, he decided that he would call her to say hello and check in with her because he really didn't get to say goodbye because she was sleeping when he left at 7.20. But she didn't pick up the phone. He didn't really think much of it and figured she was out, so he would call back again later. And then he tried again, and there was no response. In total, he called three times, and all three times that he tried to call Sherry on their home phone, nobody picked up. And remember, this is the time before cell phones. 
So we thought that maybe she had felt guilty about being home and maybe she changed her mind and went into work anyway. So we called the secretary at the hospital to ask if his wife was there. But when he called, they said, no, Sherry had called out of work in the morning and she never came in. That's so it's so crazy to think of a time that cell phones and GPS tracking just doesn't exist. Like if I wanted to look to see if you were at work, I mean, not that I do it often, but I could just see where you are, you know? Right. Like it's it's so I don't know. That's a scary world to not have that kind of power to be able to like look and see if someone's okay. Or just call text them, them. Right. Like call them wherever they are. Like, you know. Yeah, like if it's an emergency, like back then you would have had to call the school office and they would have to Yeah. Page me over the loudspeaker. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Wow. So John thought this was very strange. And he tried to call a few more times throughout the day, but there was no answer. On the way home, he ran some errands. He went to the bank, got dry cleaning, purchased a new pair of shoes. He's busy. Yeah. So when he got back to their condo, he drove straight into the garage. John noticed instantly that Sherry's car was gone, which was odd. It would have been weird if she had been gone all day because, remember, he had been calling and then she was still gone. Where would she have gone? So after he parked the car and got out, he noticed that there was glass around the entryway of the garage near the garage door. He walked up the stairs that led into the condo, and as soon as he got inside, he knew that something was terribly wrong. On the wall directly in front of him, he saw a bloody handprint right next to the door that led to the garage. He also saw all of their stereo equipment stacked up like someone was trying to steal it but hadn't taken it with them, like they were collecting it there. That's a little bizarre. Then John looked further into the room and saw Sherry. She was laying on the floor, dead. She was still wearing what she had slept in the night before, a t-shirt and underwear, but now she had a robe on. She must have just woken up before all of this happened. John ran to his wife and tried desperately to feel for a pulse, but there was nothing. He called 911 and waited anxiously for them to get there. When the first responders and police officers got to the scene, they assessed the situation and officially declared Sherry dead at 6.12 p.m. Now it was time to begin a homicide investigation. The detectives did not need help from John to know that things were not right in the house. The entire place was a mess. Belongings were all over the place. A shelf had fallen down, knocking everything that was on it down too. And the stereo equipment had been stacked, as I said before, like someone was about to carry it out the door. Finally, one of the sliding glass windows had been shot or shattered by a bullet. This was an attempted robbery that led to a brutal struggle and eventually ended the life of Sherry Rasmussen. That's really sad. Yeah. And, we, you know, we always see these scenes where it's a staged struggle or a staged robbery. But this looks like this is the, the LAPD is telling John this is the real deal. 
Like, this yeah. is what a scene looks like. What it actually looks like, yeah. I think that's actually scary because when you try to picture this scene right now, it's like, okay, you have everything a mess. She's laying on the ground. There's blood on the, on, you know, handprints in certain places. I think the worst part about it is that means that this person or people, whoever decided to do this, might have been waiting for John to leave. I mean, that's what it would seem like maybe that they waited. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because statistically that's when most robberies take place. Right. I see what you're saying. Like, I mean, obviously they're waiting for the husband to leave. So it's a little bit easier to either, you know, just take what they want from the house or if they are trying to actively target her, it's easier. Right. And I wonder if, too, in this situation, because their normal routine is that she leaves first, like maybe they someone who's casing the place out goes, oh, the husband leaves last. So when he left, they might have just assumed she had left already. Or it was just, yeah, like a perfect time. Also, I I think it's interesting because she had her robe on. So this must have been like right away. Yeah. After he left. Right. So immediately after John called Sherry's parents, Nels and Loretta, the detectives did as well. They told the couple who lived in Tucson that their daughter's murder looked like a robbery gone wrong, a robbery that turned into murder, and that they would do everything in their power to find out who had done this. They were devastated. Sherry really had been everything to them. They were so proud of her and happy for her and her husband. Now, usually with a crime like this, there would be an obvious scene of forced entry, but there hadn't been. The door was perfectly intact. And when asked about the lack of breaking and entering, like, do you leave the doors or windows unlocked kind of thing, John did tell the detectives that there had been broken glass in the garage too, so maybe whoever got in got in through that way but there had been no broken windows found in the garage or in the garage door. So they're assuming maybe something happened with the car window. Okay. Yeah. Maybe they, they, maybe they hit it and broke the window to take the car. Right. Yeah. So upon further inspection, one of the detectives theorized that it seemed as if there was a, a big struggle that took place at the front door. And the fact that she was wearing her robe means that it might be a possibility that this person had come to the front door and then when Sherry went to go open the door to answer it, that they forced their way in. Right, like maybe they like almost as if they rang the doorbell. She's like, oh, someone's at the door. Let me put my robe on. Right. Right. In another scenario, they theorized that maybe John had made a mistake and left the door open. And then Sherry came downstairs during the middle of a robbery and then panic ensued. And the struggle might have been at the front door because she was trying to leave. Okay. These are all good theories. Right. Or instead of him leaving it unlocked, maybe someone picked the lock. Either way, this was a brazen attack. It was rare for something like this to happen in broad daylight. So they assumed that the people that were trying to rob the house did not think that someone was going to be home. The only thing that doesn't add up so far is... Why would you take the risk by firing a gun and making noise? Yeah, especially in a condo. Right, during the day. Right. And more than once because she was shot several times. 
that's just the oh, something that just doesn't fit. Right. Because you want to be as sneaky as possible. You know, especially if your intent is not to kill. If it really isn't, like if your intent is to just like kind of maim them or just kind of take them out of the picture to take what you want, you know, I don't think you'd want to draw attention to yourself. I agree, unless they saw your face potentially. Possibly, maybe during the struggle, maybe she removed uh, an article of clothing that was covering his face or right. whoever's face, and maybe that's why they shot. I don't know. Well, that's why there's a lot of parts of this crime scene that are confusing so they really didn't know what to make of it it's very bizarre it's interesting yeah so even though they did not know exactly how it happened or where to begin the one thing the detectives agreed about was the fact that this was the bloodiest crime scene that they had ever seen it was very evident that sherry had not gone down easy she put up one hell of a fight there was blood smears all over the wall and it made it look like two people who had blood all over them, were wrestling against it. There was also a fingernail of Sherry's that had been completely broken off. Oh, man. And found near the entryway. So she was clawing to get out of the house. That's so sad. There was a lot of evidence left at the scene, and many details left by the murderer or murderers. So the LAPD had a forensic analysis and blood spatter technician come in and evaluate what happened during the commission of the crime and how the murder took place. Their findings were as follows. At some point, a brutal fight ensued, and at one point, a gun was fired at Sherry, but missed and hit the window, the sliding glass door, instead. It is unclear as to whether the fight happened before or after the shot. What they really, really thought happened was that she came downstairs and they fired at her but missed and hit the sliding glass door. Okay. So the fight was brutal, as evident by all of the blood, the missing fingernail, and the fact that Sherry had a very deep bite mark in her arm. At some point during the fight, Sherry was hit from behind with a plaster statue from the condo. The blow must have knocked her down to the ground. And while she was down, she was shot three times in the chest at point-blank range. A colorful quilt had been picked up by the killer and held over the gun to make a makeshift silencer to help muffle the sound to the neighbors. That is very unique to see. Well, that's like you mentioned yeah. the That's gun probably sounds. why they didn't hear anything. But I mean, what even with that being said, that would that would still not get rid of all of the sound that a gun would make. No. I mean, also but then again, you are in the present you're in a home w- with most of the windows and doors closed and you're trying to actively silence it. So yeah, I mean, they probably you probably heard something, but not as much as if you didn't do it at all, right? Right. So the scene was completely processed, and anything they found of interest was sent over to the labs for testing. The bite mark on Sherry's arm was swabbed for saliva and sent in. And once all of that stuff was sent in, investigators wanted to begin their case. And well, before I I move forward with that, remember it's also 1986. So there, there is no, like, DNA testing like we have today. It is very much in its infancy. 
but they don't have that technology. They're just they yeah. want to keep it just in case. Well, that's that's what actually I was going to ask you. Like, if they did a good job, kind of preserving evidence, they did because it seems like there's a lot here. I mean, because you have you have bite impressions, you have saliva, um, you might uh, possibly have bl- a blood like the person's blood somewhere, and maybe hair, DNA there's under so the fingernail. Many things, so many things here. So I'm I'm I would, that's the biggest question I was going to ask you. Well, I think that they did preserve it really well, only because. They were hearing about all of this new technology that was coming out. Yeah. Because in the early 80s, this is when it all started. So I think after they were hearing about what will later become a possibility, they started doing better preservation of DNA evidence. So a woman who has just been married has been murdered. So where's the first place they always start? The husband. The husband. Why? And his name's John. Yeah. John didn't do anything wrong. Detectives had asked John about that morning and day. And, you know, they found it a little odd that although he said he was very worried that he hadn't heard from his wife all day, he still chose to run all of those errands after work. Okay, so (laughs) now we have to try to rule this guy out. Or maybe we'll find some on him. That is true, though. That is true that you were concerned about her where she was. You made all these phone calls and did all these things, but yet that you were running to go get new shoes and a bunch of other stuff. Go to the bank. If you were that concerned, that was not where you would be. You know, I mean, for the most part. It doesn't look good for John. Well, since I'm a John, if I knew, if I was looking for you, but I'm like, wait, we have a party to go to and I need shoes. You know, I'd be doing that last minute. That's true. (laughs) I'm trying to make a joke about it. But honestly, um... Yeah, I mean, that is a little suspicious. But this would require a lot of help or a lot of planning if he was to be the one involved. How do you get a car, move it, put it somewhere, then hop back into your car, bring it back? Like, it's there's a lot involved there. Well, maybe there. he paid for someone to do it. Mm, I see what you're saying. Murder for hire, maybe. Well, their thought process is, did you not rush home because you knew what the outcome was going to be? And that's why you called three times to see, like, if it happened yet. If she didn't pick up, obviously, it was done. Yeah. Hmm. And then you're setting up your alibi by calling up her job, possibly. Right. Right. Maybe. Because by calling her job, you could essentially be getting her in trouble. Because it means, like, I know she wasn't really sick, so did she come in? (laughs) You know? Yeah, true. So it just made them think that it seemed like he wasn't really worried Or that he didn't know what happened. And the detectives did make a note by saying that they really wouldn't have even thought about it too much, about all the errands that he ran, if he hadn't have been so adamant with them about how worried he was about her. Like if he said, oh, I called my wife a few times, I figured she was still out, whatever. And then I ran some errands and came home and found this. But he was very vocal about how worried he was. Yeah, so if I, you're so worried, yeah. why do that? I don't think it warrants a red flag, but I think it warrants a question flag about why be so concerned yet you're running errands. So that's a question flag for sure. Okay. I Definitely. Like Not a red I have, flag I haven't yet. done I haven't done my question my question in red flags in a while, no, so No, you haven't. I know, you know what? It's just uh, you know, I just take uh I take whatever path the wind guides me to, you know. <laughs> that's you good know. job. Yeah, I don't know. I just made that crap up. But anyway, <laughs> So now that they had their suspicions about John, they had to do two things. 
find out more about the couple, and verify his alibi. To find out more about the couple, the detectives spoke with their friends and family. From them, they discovered that John and Sherry were very much in love. They had just gotten married and had only been together for a short amount of time. Like, they're still only two years in. This is honeymoon phase. Well, I mean, we've been married a while now. And I would like to say that we are still in a honeymoon phase. Yes, madly in love. Madly in love. Madly in love with each other. (laughs) (laughs) And this is how they appeared to everybody, including those on Sherry's side. And people that were close to Sherry, both friends and family, said that they didn't believe that John would be capable of doing this to her. Well, that's what most people say when you ask their family and friends. Because it is insane when it happens, right? It's so people true. People snap. Well, I never knew you could do it. Well, it happened. It's the same thing when people say, not this neighborhood. This neighborhood's amazing. Are you sure? Right. Are you positive? <laughs> and, and it's scary when there is a police investigation or something does go awry, how much you really don't know about some of the people that you may be closest to. So the next thing they did was they checked the couple's financial records um, because, you know, maybe the people in their lives didn't know about that. And that can cause a lot of tension in relationships. So when they looked into that, they realized that everything looked like it was going well. They didn't owe money. There weren't any problems. There were no high payments made or received. Like, remember, they're still looking like, could John have paid someone to do this? Right. You know, if everything's good at the bank and everything seems to check out there, maybe if there's any life insurance policies where he would make out really well, that could always mm-hmm. be it because that's what it always could be. We, I, You know, it's so funny because a lot of times we say the same things over and over, but it's because these are the reasons why people kill. I, It's true. It's actually unheard of that it's not involving insurance or uh, some sort of money from somewhere or, I don't know, sex or infidelity, right? It's yeah, like, you're right. It's always those things. So you always have to go there first. It's so scary. Yeah. It's like husband and then everything else that follows. Yeah. It's like the husband did it and then there's three possible reasons. Yeah. Why, like branches off that. into this tree of sin. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like, damn. Well, in this case, there was no insurance policy. Okay. So... As much as the police tried to look into this, they really could find no reason why John would have wanted Sherry to be dead. He loved her. No financial problems. Everyone agreed. Uh, There was no insurance policy. They had just gotten married. They'd only been together for two years. Not enough time to start really serious problems. What could have happened? You know, when you say it like that to me, well, to us, it makes you think. Okay, maybe maybe we did write him off. Maybe we can write him off as a suspect, or just kind of dangle him. Well, you've here. always you've been on the John train since you found out his name was John. I know, right? I, you know, I think we got to put him off to the side because I think that if it's not motivated by money or infidelity that we know of at the moment, right? Um, then maybe it's not him, and it could be somebody that she no longer talks to anymore. Or maybe someone that he does that John does not talk to anymore, and maybe it's a jealousy kind of thing. Oh, maybe. Or you know, or completely random. Right. Well, the LAPD was kind of thinking along the same lines as you were, because once they checked his alibi, like all of the stores that he visited and work, they really put him on the back burner too. The day after discovery, the LAPD canvassed the condominium complex 
and the surrounding area to see if anyone had seen anything out of the ordinary or people hanging around. One neighbor said that before there had been any police activity the day before, two gardeners had been working around her home and they rang her doorbell and dropped off a purse and a wallet that they found nearby her property. When she looked inside, she found that the wallet belonged to Sherry. That must be that must be scary that you yeah. that you come that you come across that kind of object and you know that that woman yeah. had been murdered. Yep. So she had been planning on returning it because she thought maybe the woman like put her purse on top of her car and drove away kind of situation, but then all this police activity started happening and they had come to her door before she brought it to the police station. Okay. So this piece of evidence really convinced the detectives that she had interrupted a robbery. They had grabbed her purse on the way out and thrown her wallet and purse out the window once they'd taken the cash that was in her wallet. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, yeah, they've grabbed the last thing before they leave. Right. The only thing that uh, I wanted to bring up, just because it was in my head, I don't want to forget it because I'm bad with that, um, is when they were kind of combing through the crime scene and they they did the they got they saw the bite on her and um a couple of other things i think what's weird about the bite and the struggle that ensued is i mean not to say that a, a woman can't put up a fight against a male intruder right um but i do think it's a little interesting that a man would go to bite a woman like that in a struggle only because a bite is like a last resort kind of thing. A desperation. Desperation move when two people are on, in the same strength class okay. where they are o- almost at even odds with each other. Mm-hmm. Y- you would go to bite me if I was overpowering you because I'm a, I'm a man and you're a woman and maybe you're struggling to fend me off. Like if someone came to rob us and I was home alone, the robber wouldn't bite me or something. If it was like a male you. that would already be able to dominate me physically. I just think that a bite and I and I hate to say it like that, but I feel like a bite is more of like traditionally, I guess No, I, I'm it's following a woman you. thing. Like it's a woman thing to You're do. You're not gonna to bite. offend anyone. I, I I'm just making sure. I don't think most men are gonna bite a female victim unless you're into some weird crap. I don't know. Okay. You know, like some serial killer shit where you're biting your victims. But okay. I'm just saying, I don't think that you would do that if you're like a burglar trying to steal some stuff. Okay. I think that's a really interesting perspective that hasn't been brought up by detectives yet. Yeah. I'm just throwing that out there. Because you're right. This struggle was extensive. And would the struggle have been as extensive if it was someone that could have easily overpowered, overpowered Sherry? Yeah. And one last thing. The gun... I don't know what kind of gun it is yet, but we won't even get into that. But the gun, that must have been just kind of brought with that person as like the last, like a last ditch effort. Like, I don't want to use this, but I'll show it to this person if I have to. That's what I think. I don't think it was used because why would you even have uh, go through the struggle if you could just pull out your gun, shoot that person and be done with it? So maybe, and I'm going to throw something out here. Yeah. Maybe it was like, a couple robbery, like a man, like a and, a man and a female. I mean, that's possible. Because that doesn't make you look suspicious walking around a neighborhood, a guy, a, a man and a woman, just taking a walk. I mean, I guess you're right. I mean, it is broad daylight. So if the female is struggling with her, it could have happened. 
Yeah. Also, one last thing. Well, I'm sorry. I keep saying one last thing, but I'm not done. Okay. These are all the things on my mind that I should have just done before. It's okay. Um, we're, we're here. We're and here one last you. thing is, and not to take credit away from anybody, but to shatter a window, hotwire a car, or if they didn't hotwire it, then they took the keys. But all those things, that's pretty – like that would indicate that there's two people involved. Yeah. And also, remember, she got hit in the back of the head. So what it seemed like was she was struggling with one person and then someone else came up behind her and hit her in, over the head with something. Yeah, it's it's possible. I think we're getting to something and I really wanted to put that out before we continue. Okay. All right. So you're thinking two people and you're thinking the bite indicates that one may have been a female. I think the struggle was maybe a female. Because it was more equal of a battle. Yes, right. Not to say she couldn't fight the man. I'm just saying if a man was involved. Don't worry, we're... Don't worry, honey. I know. It's very shaky territory sometimes. I know. You got to watch out what you say I nowadays. Understand. But not to take anything <laughs> away from anybody, but it's just an observation. So the picture was becoming more and more clear to the detectives who were analyzing the scene. Sherry had walked down the stairs in the middle of a robbery. They shot at her, missed, and then a brutal fight went down, which ended in her death. Because she had died, they wanted to get out of there fast. So they left the stereo equipment that they had planned to take. They left with Sherry's purse and her BMW. It made sense that they would take the car because after all of those gunshots, they needed to leave the home without revealing their identity. After they took the cash, they threw her purse and wallet out the window. It seemed pretty cut and dry, but there was one more detail that seemed really odd. Something that they couldn't quite figure out. There was something else missing from the scene. The couple's marriage certificate. Their marriage certificate? Yeah. Could it be the couple took it? Is it a stolen identity thing? Maybe that helps prove your point that there was a female involved. Yeah. I mean, because, okay... uh I mean, I don't even know the many things that you could do with a marriage certificate, like I'm um, for you identity get, wise. You, you could get a new social security card. Yeah, but you would need. What I'm saying is, that's just one point or the two points out of however many points you might need to get an identity change or some sort of change. Like you need a lot well, of things. Once you get, you have a marriage certificate, you can get a social security number. Then you can get a new social security card issued. What I'm saying is it's a little and harder to do, right? And then you get a do, license. Right? Well, it's, not, it's 1986. I mean, that's true. It's very easy. But that isn't a very interesting thing to take because did they take it for not even the an identity reason? Did they just take it because it's like a big F you to like whoever was in there? Like a trophy? Yeah, like, hey, you know, you know hey, look at me. Look what I got. Your marriage means nothing. And like, <laughs> I took it. Like, no, Maybe. but really though, like if it's if it is a man or a woman or both, Right. They would take that as a symbol of you guys mean nothing. Maybe. Like your marriage is a fraud. Interesting. I'm taking it. Okay. Like look at you guys in this really expensive condo and your BMW. Like, you I'm, think you guys yeah. are great and cool and everything. Look what we could do to you. Like. Okay. I don't know. Another another that's a odd that, that's a question right there. Okay. Question that's a question flag, flag for that marital certificate like for it. sure. Yeah. I don't know. I think that one's a red flag. Well, it's not a red flag because we haven't determined who it could be. Okay. So it's not a really a red flag. So the detectives poured over the clues and appealed to the public for two weeks for information until finally they received their first break in the case. 
Sherry's missing BMW was found two and a half miles away from the couple's condo in a very high crime neighborhood with the keys inside. And you know what that means. It was clear that whoever left it intended for it to be stolen or stripped. Fortunately, their plan did not work. It seemed that the criminals of the neighborhood were a lot smarter than the killer gave them credit for. The car stood untouched. Nobody wanted to get involved. Because when there's an expensive car in a bad neighborhood with the keys inside, it meant that it was somehow involved with another crime. And if you're a smart criminal, you don't want to touch it because say you are now driving that car and you get pulled over. Well, now you're wanted for murder. So people know to stay away from that. Too good to be true. Now, I don't want to say this. I'm I'm just going to do it. Screw it. It shows some form of sophistication, a little bit, because it's you're actively planning this out. Like, yes, like... Having to leave right away in a hurry, you take the car. Like, that's not planned. That was just kind of like you most likely just had to do that. Right. But to ditch the car in a very bad neighborhood where you think it's going to be stripped or taken shows that you've never committed crimes before. And this might be your first time doing it. And you think, oh, we'll put it over there in L.A. No no one gives a shit over there. You know, like that's the kind of thing that you're doing. Yeah. So that meaning you are not from that neighborhood. Okay, okay. That, that's that that's one thing. You're not from that neighborhood. But you think you know what happens. You think you know what happens. Um so it's it's weird. It's like sophistication because you're planning, but it's actually dumb because it works against you. Now it looks like you're just trying to make it look like somebody in a bad neighborhood did it. Right. So Or you're trying to get rid of the car without having right. it be tied back to you. Interesting. <clears throat> the detectives knew that this is what happened. So they wanted to search and fingerprint the entire car. Crime scene techs sweeped the car, but they were unable to find anything, not even a hair. And oddly enough, there were zero prints on the car. So all of the prints had been wiped. On the BMW? On the BMW. Okay. On the inside and outside. And this was a very frustrating thing to happen because their only lead in the whole case went nowhere. And again, there was a lot of stagnation in this case, where the detectives again could only pour over what they already had and re-interview neighbors, friends, and family. But then, a month later, something very interesting happened in a condo complex that was three blocks away from Sherry's. There had been a string of burglaries in the area of Sherry's murder before and after the discovery of Sherry's body. But this incident was eerily similar. A woman reported to police that she had been asleep in her bed in the morning when she heard a knock at her door. She could see through the glass panel that there was a man standing in front of her front door, but she didn't recognize him. So she felt odd about the whole situation. So she chose not to say anything, like to make it look like she wasn't home, and she went back up to her room. Could that have been what happened to Sherry? She was asleep, and she woke up to a knock, so she put on her robe to go downstairs. Oh, yeah, that's definitely what happened, for sure. Wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Okay. 
From there, she went on about her day and she didn't really think much about the strange person that had knocked on her front door. She went out and got lunch and was maybe gone for about an hour. When she got back home and approached the front entryway of her house, she realized that the front door had been forced open, not broken in, but somehow like the lock was picked. She tentatively opened the door and as she did, she saw a man in her hallway who was bringing more of her stereo equipment to an already high pile of equipment that he'd been stacking at the front door. This person, if this is the same person, this guy likes stacking things. Yeah. Okay. Well, because it's easy to then just take it and they could pick what they want. Right. And by the way, not that I'm uh, saying to do this, but, or don't look this up, please don't. But if you don't have a deadbolt, it's. Ve- I just wanted you to know. It's very easy to like open a door without even lock picking it. Honestly, you can shim it. Like you can shim things into the door, so that way the Great. lock does not make connection to the to the actual frame, and you could open it. It's not hard to do. No, that's why everyone says, "Oh, a deadbolt, a deadbolt," because it, it is great. You can't do anything with that. Right. But a regular lock on a door, yeah, you could just like shimmy something in there, like something plastic, and you could literally like keep jamming it, and it'll open. Well, that's really scary. Yeah. You just got to wiggle and move things around a little. Well, we need a deadbolt. We have deadbolts on every door. Oh, we do? Yep. Oh, okay. I just don't know anything about our security system. Well, <laughs> you don't. That's why I, yeah. But that's okay. That's why I'm here. So back to this poor woman. She opens her door and she sees a man stacking stereo equipment. When the man sees her, he drops what he's holding and bolts from the house the commotion brought another man out he came rushing down the stairs that led up to the bedrooms and he had a gun with him he pointed the gun at the woman who is still outside of the condo she screams and then runs away to put distance between herself and the man okay and i mean the similarities between this woman's case and sherry's are uncanny i think the only difference is sherry answered that door in the morning i mean that is a little odd to have only three blocks away have the same kind of incident take place and similar robberies had taken place both before and after sherry's murder but this one was like exactly to a t so was this the same two people that had done this I mean, I guess there is a possibility, right? I mean, they're doing the same thing. And it seemed like the one man is more aggressive than the other. Hmm. In this case, because what had happened to Sherry might have rattled him, did this first man run away besides fight, instead of fight? I see what you're saying. Maybe. Interesting, right? It is interesting. Like I said, the three blocks away thing is... Three blocks away. Another robbery in broad daylight stacking stereo equipment and there was a gun involved and two people it's a lot of similarities and in addition to that it seemed as if the men's first attempt to get into the house the knock at the door in the morning was really what happened to sherry and that goes back to the original that was the first thought process all the officers had was it looks like there was a struggle at the front door because that's where her fingernail was missing now both of these, maybe you could help me out here, kind of fill in the gap that I have. Yeah. Both of these situations now, these incidents, were things 
taken, like a lot of stuff taken. Like you keep saying that they were all stacked, the equipment, but did they take other things? The only other things taken from the house were documentation in the other robberies that had taken place before and after. They took stereo equipment, banking documentation, and cash. Okay, so they were trying to go light. Yeah. Okay, because that's that's one of the things I was thinking of. I'm like, okay. But in the 80s, that's the big moneymaker, the stereo equipment. 100%. But what I'm trying to get at is it's at first when they dropped the car off at Sherry's house, uh, when they took it, I was thinking, well, that's kind of weird because people in broad daylight would see someone walking out looking like Santa Claus with a big bag yeah. of, <laughs> of goods in there uh, from the house. Right. So it's like they must have taken other things that were light other than the stereo systems that they couldn't take. Right. Because when they got out of the car and left the keys in the car, I'm thinking, wow, they must have to really hurry up and take everything out and start walking with bags of things, you know? Well, what it seems like is that there there are two people and they have a car nearby. And then they just transfer everything into the car into and Into their car and leave. Yeah, I was thinking that too. And that really makes – and this is a big break in the case because this is what the detectives had been thinking all along. There had to have been two people because one person drove – one person drove that car, and then the second person got the BMW. Okay. Yeah. There, I think the reason why I, I was asking all this was because they, you know, you're not going to do all this and go through all this work and leave with nothing. So Correct. I, they left with something. Okay. So detectives saw this as a very big break in the case because of the similarities. The woman whose condo had been invaded worked closely with police to recall everything that had happened with those men and what they looked like. She'd been able to tell them that the man that pointed the gun at her had been holding a revolver. And this also piqued the interest of detectives because that had been the weapon used in Sherry's murder. Oh, they were able to grab the uh, bullet casing or the or the actual bullet? Like how they know that it was that From was Sherry's murder, yes. Yeah. And they were able to recover the bullets in her. Okay, I figured. I just want to make sure. Okay. So they knew everything was kind of like the same in what she had seen and Sherry's murder. So the men had been stealing the same kind of equipment, stacked it into a pile right in front of the front door, which was exactly where John had found it when he entered the condo a month prior. The woman worked with a sketch artist, and once they were completed, the sketches were released to the population of the San Fernando Valley area. The men were Latino. One had very short hair and the other shoulder length. Above the sketches was the promise of $10,000, a reward for anyone who aided in the capture of these men. The high reward was done in hopes that someone would turn them in and it had been put up by Sherry's parents. I mean, they want answers. Yes. These men were brazen and violent and they wanted them to pay for what they had done to their daughter. Unfortunately, the second crime, the sketches, the reward, it didn't lead to anything. No one turned in those men, and both crimes went unsolved. Sherry's parents and John feared that her murder would go unsolved unless something very big happened. The calls that her parents would get from the detectives at the LAPD would go from frequent to far and few between, which, as you could imagine, frustrated Sherry's family in Tucson. It was hard for them to put pressure on detectives from so far away, and they also understood that in an area like L.A., the homicide detectives had more than just their daughter's case to work on. 
But because all they could do was sit and think about the horrific things that happened, the Rasmussens came up with some leads and possible suspects. And they wrote a letter to the detectives in the LAPD that had still been assigned to the case. But unfortunately, that letter was never answered and another call never came in. And that is how the case stood for 15 years. I really hate when that happens. I mean, like, listen, don't get me wrong. I mean, cold cases, uh, they're just terrible. They destroy families. It really is terrible. But for us, being the ones to read about it or talk about it, it's always intriguing. But it's hard for those families. Because the unknown is what, like... Who did this? Why? Like, because that must be what the family is saying. Yeah. And then every year that goes by, it's getting further and further away from investigators and the family because either the people aren't alive anymore that could provide information. It just gets really hard. And I'm sure her parents are thinking, we're getting older. We don't want to die not knowing what happened to our daughter. Yeah. So in 2001, the powers that be in the LAPD decided that they really wanted to tackle the cold cases that they had sitting on the shelves. There were, at that point, over 6,000 murders that had gone cold. 6,000. During what time period? The 15 years? Well, since they had been collecting unsolved murders. Got it. Okay. Yeah. One of them being super the super famous Black Dahlia case. That, that case is actually one of the most intriguing cases. Yes. So, of course, we all know there's no statute of limitations on murder. And they also knew that a lot of these cases came from a time before DNA technology was where it was at in 2001. So the newly formed cold case unit was told to run a check and figure out the cold cases that had DNA evidence to test because those could easily get, like, knocked out, which is nice. And unfortunately, there's such a backlog of of testing cases like this and that's because of limited resources that departments have but it's true a lot of cases that are sitting on shelves could be solved by just testing dna yeah, because nowadays it's 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 probably it's probably even more cost effective now that it's ever been like to do that stuff well it's expensive and labs are really backed up oh i know what you mean but yeah. what i'm saying is like back let's say like uh early 90s or mid 90s it was able to be done but you'd have to go to quantico or like somewhere yes. crazy to do it and it's or your costly. state labs yeah exactly where now it could be done practically anywhere that has right. those facilities usually they'll still spend send it out to either county or state labs just because they could test a little bit more intensively and it's also secure too mm-hmm. so the detectives requested which of those 60,000 plus cases had viable DNA evidence that could be tested? And one of the cases that popped up was from the Van Nuys Division, Sherry's case. Not only had the crime scene technicians done a good job at preserving the DNA samples taken from the crime scene that day, they also had been able to collect two separate samples, one from all of the blood smears on the wall and the other from the bite mark that had been left on Sherry's arm. A detective was assigned to her case because this may be one that technology and some good old-fashioned police work could solve. The detective went out to the division and retrieved the case file, which included the notes from the detectives and the crime scene photos. It had been confirmed from the files 
that the two swabs had been taken. So easy, right? Just go down to evidence locker, retrieve those samples. Wrong. When the detectives went down to get the samples, there was no record of either swab ever being there. How? But I thought they did it. They did do it. And it took some running around and a lot of phone calls on the part of the detectives. But finally, they were able to locate where the sample was. The coroner's office. So it had never been moved from the coroner's office to the evidence locker. And there was a reason for that. The At the time in 1986, the LAPD evidence locker, uh, there was just some concerns about it. Like there wasn't as much storage capabilities as the coroner's office. Plus, they wanted these two samples to be stored at the proper temperature, which they didn't feel like could be done at the LAPD offices at the time in 1986. Okay, so maybe that was actually uh, smart and forward thinking. Yes. Okay. And to the relief of the detectives, the evidence was still sealed, so no chain of custody had been broken, and it would be able to be upheld in court if they got a match at any time. So when the samples were taken in for testing, the detectives got lucky again because the forensic scientists were able to pull a DNA sample from the bite mark. And guess what, John? What? It was female. No way. Yes. Yes. I'm right. Sorry. So. <laughs> it's been a little while since I've been right. So as I'm, soon as I'm you right, said I'm it, good. I was like, oh, he's got it. <laughs> yes. So the detective was shocked. For 15 years, the belief had been that two men had gotten away with murder. So even though this had discredited the connection between Sherry's case and the woman's break-in case that was three blocks away from hers, that was just a crazy coincidence, it didn't mean that the motive for the crime wasn't robbery. That much was still very evident. But what it meant was this crime was probably most likely committed by a man and woman team. Ah, would you look at that. Look at that. (laughs) So although many years had passed since the crime had first been committed, many of the detectives that had been working then were still with the department. So the detectives decided that they would ask around and see if anyone knew about a couple who was kind of working robberies, burglaries in the area at the time. Like a modern day Bonnie and Clyde. Correct. Okay. So one detective recalled a male-female burglary pair that had operated within the Van Nuys area in the 1980s and 90s. But they didn't look at it back then because they didn't know that it was female. Yeah, and you figured it out right away. Like, what the hell? You gotta be a detective. I Like, that right there is insane your talents. to me. That is insane to me that they didn't even think to put it together. I would have had every single, even if the list was like out the door of the police station, I would have had a list of every single burglar in the area, regardless. Wow. Why? Why? LAPD. How do you hiring that? John's here. I moved to California. No, no, no. That's too far. So um, this was perfect. In looking into this couple, the detective did find that during the time of Sherry's murder, the female was not in prison, but the male had been in prison. However, that didn't deter him from the idea that she still could have been involved because when they kept looking at that female's arrest record, she was arrested with several male accomplices. 
Oh my God. Okay, check this out. So she could have just been working with another person in February of 86. That's true, right? This also bolsters my theory, though, that the gun might have been brought to kind of help out her case because maybe she was used to working with the same guy, right? Because that's what they're going all based on this theory. So maybe she was lacking the confidence because she's working with somebody new. So she doesn't the gun, have her partner. Right. So the gun was brought in for extra, uh, quote unquote, insurance. Right. So maybe she was the one that was fighting with Sherry. And then when the guy came around to help her, he hit her in the back of the head. Yeah, maybe. Well, the woman's DNA was on file. So it was tested against the female DNA profile that had been from the bite mark. It was not a match. Oh, man. Okay. So, same as in 1986, another good lead went nowhere. And now they are back to the drawing board. The detective wanted to take another look at the burglary that had taken place three blocks from Sherry and John's condo. Because it seemed like too much of a coincidence. And in really taking a look at the file, he was able to see that maybe the detectives back in the 80s wanted there to be more of a connection than there really was. Because when you break down the two separate cases, they actually are very different from each other. Okay. In the second case, where the woman had only disturbed the break-in, there had been a lot more things stolen. There was a huge disturbance on the second floor as well with drawers and the wardrobe being yanked open and clothes everywhere. Also, in the second case, the intruders had come in their own car. Now, although this was a possibility that one left in Sherry's car and the other did not, it seemed upon a second glance that the cases really weren't that similar. Like, no one had reported another car being parked outside of Sherry's condo the day of the murder. So what it seemed like was the people that had committed her murder and burglary, they approached on foot, but left in the car. Okay, right. And the items are a lot different that they took as well, except the stereo equipment. But back in the 80s, that would be the go-to item. Right. So you, you could almost write that off. Right. So really, it's the only similar similarity ceiling. is just the way that they were stacking the equipment outside. Right. And that... That had been a common thing that was happening in the area. And also a gun, because they both had guns on them. So again, in the detective's eyes, this was kind of like another step backwards, because now there was really no connection to anything. And the case got even colder. Well, that's that's a little odd to say, though, because I feel like even though a couple of de- uh, we've crossed some dead ends we didn't walk away with nothing we did walk away with the fact that it, indeed the bite was done by a woman true and that really does single out a lot of potential people because there's you know there's more men involved in in crimes than women when it comes to this kind of stuff when it comes to burglaries i would say so yeah with that's what i mean by that so i think that the pool's small so we didn't walk away with nothing not nothing but all the connections that they thought were there we're gone. It's kind of like you have to erase the whole drawing board and start fresh. But now it's interesting because I would go through uh, – because now it's what? What year is it now? Uh, well, it's 2001, but because there was no forward progress moved, but there was other forward progress moved with other cold cases, Sherry's case takes another back seat okay. and doesn't get revisited again until 2009. Okay. But that's good, though, because more advancements in technology, that could be beneficial, 
Hopefully. Right. And this time the detective, yeah, another detective, wanted to take a different approach than all of his predecessors. He thought that maybe they were looking at the case all wrong. Maybe this wasn't a burglary at all. When he looked through the crime scene photos and the autopsy report, he believed that this seemed more like an emotional crime than anything else. Maybe the burglary aspect had been staged. Possible. After all, the similar burglaries of the area had also been happening before Sherry's murder. So maybe this scene had been staged to make it look like the others. He also did not think it had been two intruders either. If Sherry had been facing two people, there was no way that the fight would have lasted that long. She was an average-sized woman, and it would have been very easy for two people to overpower her. This led him to believe that the fight was between two women, like you said. You know, I'm listening to all this, and I and it's it's like all coming to, to me right now. When you said it's all coming that, back, back to, to me, me now. now. Um, okay, so when you said that it was, uh, I I was thinking, did the other thing happen before or after? And that's why I couldn't put it all together. But now that you said that, now I have a, a more of an understanding of who this might be. Actually, would you like me to just give you a guess? Okay, but I'm not going to look at you. No, no, don't look at me. Okay, so guys, this is what I'm thinking. Right. Doesn't know about, like, knows about crimes, but doesn't know too much about crimes. That's why the car was left untouched with the keys in it, right? And then certain things were taken, but not things that you would really want. It looks staged. The planning of that. Are we dealing with, and a gun, too. So are we dealing with someone that is in corrections or law enforcement? And that's a woman, which would make the pool even smaller. Because I'm sure back then there wasn't a lot of female uh, correction officers or or police officers that's just a guess that's not a fact i don't know but that's just a just my guess could that be what we're looking at here maybe the thought the thoughts of it would would make sense right the planning the planning of those things because it's like you have enough information but not enough to like you have enough to plan it but not enough to carry it out a hundred percent okay Right? Because a cop's not going to be getting involved in crime. They just know about crime. They're not actually doing it. And LAPD's track record isn't really that good either. Now, is it? I would say no. I mean, that's just a fact. That yeah. is a fact. That is um, 100% a fact. So it's a possibility. It's my theory. We'll run with it. Okay. Well, I'll run with it. So this is something that the detective really kind of wants to latch on to. The fact that he believes it was just one solo female. And the fact that the saliva was, like, the saliva on the bite was from a woman just kind of further proves his hypothesis. So I also haven't gone into detail about this yet, but the location of the bite was on, that was on Sherry's arm, it was clear that the way and the location in which she was bitten on her forearm points to the fact that she had someone in a headlock. So at one point, Sherry had her attacker in a headlock and the person bit her to oh, get wow. out of the headlock. Okay. That's why the bite was on the arm. So like, he's like, it's so obvious that this right. bite was with a woman. Yeah. I like you, detective. Yes. I don't know your name, but I like you. Yeah. Also, the physical attack seemed personal. 
Most of the beating and wounds had been done to her facial area, and then she was shot at close range into her chest. The left side of her face had been smashed with extensive cuts and bruising. She was shot three times in the heart. It was just overkill. Also, let us not forget, the marriage license had been taken. That's so weird to me. And there's more. Okay. The BMW that had been driven away had been a gift from John. All right. The the pure motivation of just, I'm mad that you guys are together. I'm going to destroy this. And that's what you said in the beginning, a jealousy thing about the marriage certificate. Yes. Like your relationship's a fraud. Right. Which means maybe John was involved with somebody else, maybe before Sherry, maybe. Maybe. Or during. Or during. Or during. Sure. I mean, he's John, so I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, but... There's a lot of Johns out there. You know, I know. They're not all good. No, they're not. John Gacy. Serial killer. Oh, man. All right. Don't... Okay. There's... And there's others. Never mind. Forget I even said that. (laughs) So the detective combed further through the file, and he found it. An interview with John that was had after the detectives had found out that the saliva was from a female in 2001. John said that there was a woman named Stephanie that he had been seeing when he met Sherry. It had been a little difficult to break up with her. She could have done something, but he didn't know if she was capable of that. Then, the detective, still combing through the case file, got to something very interesting. Remember that letter that Sherry's father wrote to detectives? Well, in it, he was pleading them to not look at the case as a burglary gone wrong, but rather a crime of passion, and that they should investigate John's ex-girlfriend, Stephanie. How is the, How was this not looked at at all? It was the LAPD in the 1980s. You literally have a person saying, please, don't be like one-track-minded, please, just look into this. And they don't even do it. Well, this is what's really frustrating, right? So I lay out this case for you. And within the first, like, I would say 35, 40 minutes, you're like, it seemed like she had a fight with a female. It's pretty obvious. And then it seems like the parents of the murder victim are saying, can we look at it as a crime of passion? Um, How is it not blaringly obvious that maybe they should just give this Stephanie girl a look an interview. Is can, can we chalk this up to the time period maybe? Whereas to now it's different. The time period, the corruption of the force, the overwhelming amount of cases they were probably facing. It's a combination of all of them. If I think this was uh, a pair of detectives who didn't have a very heavy caseload of other homicides to deal with, it might have been something they looked into. But, you know, it's not an excuse. No, it's not. It never is. But, you know, I think that that might be... Just as a common courtesy to the parents of a murder victim. You should have. Should have at least thought about it. And maybe the puzzle pieces would have connected. Maybe the cold case wouldn't have been cold at all. Right. So the reason why Sherry's parents wanted detectives to look at Stephanie was because she had been acting very strange before the wedding. And, mind you... This is before they even knew that the saliva on the bite wound was from a female. 
So those parents felt something from her way before Correct. any of this even because took place. Because Sherry was expressing all of these weird things that were taking place with Stephanie. Okay. So now detectives are very interested in who Stephanie is. John had met Stephanie at UCLA when they were both living within the same dorm building. They both played basketball on the courts that were nearest their dorms. John loved to play casually in the leagues, but Stephanie played for the school on their walk-on team. In addition to that, she was also on partial academic scholarship. Those that went to the school with the two of them remembered that they had a very flirty relationship. Stephanie would steal John's clothes while he was showering in the communal bathroom space, and then she would take pictures of him when he would have to come out of the shower naked, even without a towel. In an interview in 2009, once the detective was on the trail of Stephanie, John told him that the two of them had begun a sexual relationship while they were in college, but that it had never been exclusive. So they were kind of friends with benefits okay. type situation. He said that she was very aware that that was the extent of their relationship. After college, he said they kept their casual sexual relationship going. Maybe they would meet up once or twice a month, but that was it. They didn't go on dates or do anything like that. It was purely physical. He said at the time, it was very clear that the both of them were going on dates and seeing other people. The problem with those relationships is that one person always does have the feelings. Well, it's kind of like... It's kind of like, um, I don't know why this is triggering uh, this memory, but it's like, uh, remember The Sopranos when uh, Tony Soprano was with that one Mercedes-Benz dealer? Yes, lady? yes, yes. Okay, it's kind of like that. It's like they don't want to just- her name Gloria? I don't remember. Am I making that I think, up? Oh, Gloria Trillo. Yes, You're right. yes, yes. Okay, now I know there was a little bit more involved. She was a little out of her mind, but forget that part. Just think about this part. When you're dealing with a relationship that is, quote unquote, purely physical and nothing more, for you to say there's no feelings that come out of that is wrong, right? So I think that they don't want to just be the other girl where you're just coming here to, like, just, you know, hit it and quit and leave. Sometimes they're playing a long game. Right. It's, I'm going to be around for a long time, and then when they're ready for a relationship, they'll realize I'm here. Right, but when you see what's unfolding in front of you, he doesn't plan on leaving. He has a wife. He has no intentions of doing anything with you. There is resentment that is built there. Correct. But there's also, as the party in this relationship, because sometimes it could be the male yeah, that, sure. that has yeah. this feelings. Some people, some people are capable of having sex and having no emotions connected to it. Others are not. And what happens is that one party that is emotionally involved in this relationship their self-esteem gets kind of caught up in whether or not this person is going to long-term accept them because they're thinking, why am I not good enough? And what do I have that these other people that they're actually taking out on dates or marrying do have? And like you said, that causes anger and resentment. But here we go. We just found motive. This to me is a red flag, a big one. The fact that they were on and off friends with benefits and they continued it through for a while, that is a red flag. It shows that she was so bitter about what how you know how things went, you know, down with him, with John, that 
it could be cause and motive for murder. Right. And we don't know what he was saying to her and we, we the have no idea of all of that. I'm sure he is to blame for some of this as well. Let's let's be honest. Well, John said that he ended the casual arrangement when he began seeing Sherry seriously. Well, we don't know if he's being honest. However, or not. okay, there, there we go. go. There uh-huh. we go. Yep, yep. There was a time or two when he did have sex with Stephanie after he proposed to Sherry. Not good. And then he told Stephanie, you know, before the wedding, they could never be together again. Okay, so now he gives her an ultimatum, which then built not an ultimatum. I'm sorry, but a final like we're done. That well, is no, worth. he said he said we could still be friends, but nothing sexual. All right, well, that's probably not going to go over well. No. Well, John said she seemed to take it fine. Well, of course, she seems to take it fine. No, this is this is Fatal Attraction. I was, gonna, I was just going to say Alex and Fatal Attraction seem to take everything fine. <laughs> and by the way, guys, if you're not watching the Fatal Attraction show on Paramount Plus, you're missing out because it is as good or even better than the original movie from the 80s. That's what you were saying. And I, I mean, so, so good. it's very good. So then the detective spoke to the woman that had been Stephanie's roommate at the time. And guess what? What? Shocker, Stephanie didn't take it well. She was devastated by the fact that John was marrying someone else. She thought she was on the cool girl track. That she was staying around John, being cool, keeping things casual, until he finally decided to settle down. But now he was ready to settle down and he had picked someone else. She was distraught. So the roommate had encouraged her to see John again and express this to him. So now John goes back to Stephanie's apartment and talks with her. And John is telling detectives this. He's admitting that he did go over. And he said, when I went over, she was really upset which confused him because he thought that she had taken it so well. And then she's crying and he feels bad. So as like an official goodbye, they have sex again. Oh, come on. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. And then he said, well, after that, it was totally fine. Like we were just friends. He said that time when they had sex that last time, it was before the wedding And that after that, they had never gotten physical again. But he is sending very mixed signals because although his words say one thing, his physical actions say another. And then it gets even more. So the detectives working the cold case decided that they really needed to begin investigating Stephanie Lazarus. She seemed like a very intriguing suspect. They wanted to talk to her. But they had to be really strategic about the whole thing because she was a detective with the LAPD. Get the hell out of here. I'm sorry. No way. She was a detective. Well, then in 2009. What? I called it. You did. I've never been so spot on. I've never been so spot on. It's actually scary. I want to let you guys know that John has no access to the internet or his phone. No. So. I I was shocked. Spot on. Oh, my God. No way. <laughs> that is insane. How can I? I can't pick any more crazier cases. Like, I, what the heck? I right, listen. I, I, I'm I, trying so hard. I don't want people to think like, oh, he's full of himself or anything like that. But honestly, like, that is, I pinpointed this whole thing. Yeah. 
All right, please, please go on. This is so great. the whole I love it. time they're investigating her. She's working a few offices down from them, so they have to do this all under wraps. Yeah, like they start. They give her when they find out like who she is. Like they find they find this out. They they start giving her like every everyone has a code name. Okay, the case has a code name. John has a code name. She has a code name because they don't want people around the offices hearing about it. That is. This is so crazy. So they have to be like undercover within their own department. Yeah, because they don't want anyone to know that they're talking about her or suspecting her because she was very well liked. How is this not a movie? Honestly, I have no clue because this is crazy town. This is the craziest case I've ever heard, I yeah. think, that we've done just because of of what's involved. You have a, a detective that's involved. A cold case. They're trying to figure it out. She's literally there. Yeah. They have to do code names and weird things to, like, not blow this up. Yep. So Stephanie Lazarus had an amazing career with the LAPD. She had great accommodations from all of her superiors, and people were very impressed by the fact that she had risen through the ranks as quickly as she did. She went from patrol to homicide and burglary. Homicide and burglary. Yeah. Honey. I told you. That's why I said that. And then she went on to the theft division, like the highest in the department, because like it's a little bit of an easier job and you don't have to work crazy hours. So you have to impress the right high ranking people in the department in order to get into the theft division. And then from there, she went on to the most coveted detail in the LAPD which is art theft. That's actually really cool. Yeah, because you're working the best hours ever. And it's kind of like you're working a real nine to five. Like you don't like there's nothing crazy like that no you're going to do. No crazy shifts or anything like that. Yeah. And the people were easy. I mean, you're you're dealing with rich or famous people. Wow. Mm-hmm. See, but that makes sense. So she has gone through all the ranks in the different um, areas, like 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 theft and burglary, all that. Um, yep, that's yep. the same thing. But you know what I mean. All like she's been through all those things, so she had knowledge. Well, no, back in 1986, she was just a patrol officer. She was a, a street cop. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That doesn't make sense. Actually. Now she has because her career's extended. Well, but regardless, though, when she started out, she must have been friend. Like you said, she was well liked. Now in 2009, but mean, she must have been well liked also back then. So you don't well, think she ma- hears even things? If, even if she was hated, she still was privy to information about burglaries in the area, right? And was able to recreate the scenes, recreate them. Yeah, but it didn't work. Well, there was a physical altercation, so like that wasn't recreated. The only part that was recreated was the stacking of the stereo equipment. Which right. made, which really convinced them this was a burglary. If the stacking of stereo equipment wasn't there, I think they would have realized the emotionality of it. That's fair. Just because of what was taken. Correct. And because of all the burglaries before and after, the same things had been taken. My mind is just literally imploding on itself. <laughs> wow. Okay. So Stephanie dealt mainly with high-end art or jewels. And her work often centered to the homes of famous actors and directors, and she very much enjoyed it. 
Twice in her career, she was named Detective of the Year, and one of those times had been in the Van Nuys Division, where she killed somebody. Yeah. (laughs) Now, this could have been because of a female quota that had to be reached, but it is highly impressive that she could say that she had not had one disciplinary hearing in her entire career. And that's saying a lot when you're talking about the LAPD in the 90s. Yeah, you're right. She didn't have one disciplinary mark. Now, we are talking about one of those police departments that have a reputation for being the most brutal racist force in the country. So it's pretty good. I mean, look, whether or not she was, you know, it was a quarter or whatever you want to say, you still had to put in the work. She, and she did. So she put in the work to go up through the ranks. That's right. that's a fact. So now for these cold case detectives to say the woman with the unmarked career, the accolades, the zero disciplinary hearing committed a murder back in 1986. That's a big deal because they're going to be met with a lot of blowback because A, it's going to make the department look bad. It looks weird that someone would commit a murder in 1986 and then never commit a crime again. And the fact that she's in law enforcement just makes not just the department look bad, but law enforcement in general look bad. So they had to make sure that they had all of their ducks in a row before they went forward with this. But they have to be really careful because everyone liked her so much. So if anyone caught wind, they would begin telling her. Yeah. Or their investigation would be stopped. Yeah, I mean, think about the ramifications of this. They find out. Let's let's say she put away, I don't know, 50 people, you know, over the course of uh, uh, 10 years, let's just say. I don't know. And they got convicted and they were put away based on testimony or evidence that she collected. Right. Now they can go back and essentially there might be a way for those people she put away to come out. Correct. Because any good defense team is going to say, how are you going to put this our client away when the, the cop, the detective that put, put them in jail is a murderer? Or uh, was... Or could have tampered with evidence yes. or done something that was wrong. So yep, there's yep. this is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Like a really, really big deal. And it's it's on top of that also embarrassing because... She had been the face of the LAPD for important members of the community. I mean, we're talking about L.A. here, actors, directors, and now it's marked like this. Okay, honestly, really quickly, I need some of your water because I am parched because (laughs) this case has got me going crazy. Hold on one second. Wow, that was like the gluggiest glug of all time. Sorry, I needed it. Okay, I'm good now. So... The very low-key investigation into Stephanie revealed that she had eventually gotten married and the couple adopted a child in the 90s. So it's like this woman seems like the nicest person on the planet. But she's a killer. Everyone they asked said that she was a great person and a great police officer. So when it seemed like they weren't going to get anywhere asking people about Stephanie, they did other digging. The detectives were able to find out that back in the 1980s, the detectives for the LAPD were known to carry 38 caliber handguns as their backup. And that was the caliber bullet that had been found in Sherry's body. When they checked registration with the police department and the state at the time, Stephanie 
1986, had a 38 registered in her name. And this is when they got their first clue that they were on the right track. 13 days after the murder, Stephanie reported her 38 missing. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh wait. This wait. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. This. So this was her actual police issued 38. Well, her backup. Right, but it's yes. Okay. Wow. So she used it for the murder and then reported it missing. I feel like that's a pretty big deal, though, too. When you, If you're a cop and you lose your gun, they're going to want to know what's going on. Well, in the police report, she claimed that someone broke into her car and stole the gun, which it didn't make sense that she would keep the gun in her locked glove compartment. Okay. All right. She would have known as a police officer that if the gun was missing, there was no way for them to conduct comparative ballistic tests. She was covering her tracks. The same way she must have done when she staged the scene to look like other robberies that had been happening in the neighborhood. Armed with this information, something they felt backed up the theory, the detectives felt confident enough to go back to Sherry's parents, particularly her father, and let them know that they were looking into the lead that he had given the department decades ago for his daughter's murder. They wanted the Rasmussens to know that they knew. And that they were going to do right by their daughter. Did they give maybe like an apology, possibly? Well, that's what the, these detectives did. Okay, very good. And the elderly couple was shocked, but happy that their daughter's case was finally being looked into the right way. And taken seriously. Yes. They explained to the detectives that they had written the letter because they believed Stephanie's behavior in the time leading up to the murder was bizarre and worrisome. The woman would constantly show up unannou- unannounced to the house that the newlywed shared. Their daughter shared that she believed that Stephanie was obsessed with John and that she didn't like that he placated her. John assured his wife that nothing was going on, but Sherry felt like she knew what Stephanie was trying to do. She was trying to stay in John's life, and it was very frustrating to her that John didn't see through what this woman was doing. On one occasion, Stephanie showed up at their doorstep with a pair of skis and asked John to wax them for her because she liked the way he did it. Sherry didn't want John to do that for her because she believed it would give her the wrong message, but he gave in and told Stephanie he would. See, he's, I don't know if he likes the attention, but what he's doing is he's sending the wrong messages. Yeah, it's really hard to kind of pinpoint what's going on here. I think it's a mix of a few things. See, I know personally I am a nice person at heart, right? So you want to do the right thing. But in this case, it's not just him being nice. He's also had a physical relationship with her. He also could be possibly maybe a little bit afraid of what she could do maybe. You never know either. Like maybe he's trying to placate her. Because he doesn't want her to tell Sherry that they had been together physically after the couple had gotten together. When he probably shouldn't yeah, not have been doing that. Maybe that's the case, too. Yeah. So Sherry thought that John was just really kind of like minimizing her feelings when it came to Stephanie, which was frustrating, which she vocalized to her parents. So when Stephanie came by the condo to pick up the skis... Sherry was the only one home, and she made it known that she really wasn't welcome there anymore. She was like, this is my man. Yeah. Leave. 
And Stephanie got mouthy back with her saying something along the lines of she's not going anywhere. Then in what Sherry's parents believed was an intimidation tactic, one week after the ski incident, Stephanie showed up to the condo in her full police uniform with her gun on her hip and pushed her way into the house and asked if John was there. Sherry told her that he wasn't and Stephanie kind of like walked around a little bit, was being intimidating with her hand on her gun and then left. On another occasion, Stephanie, again in full uniform, showed up at the hospital that Sherry worked at and asked for her. While the two were talking, she said those terrifying words that we've heard before. If I can't have John, nobody can. Wait, she said that to her? At the hospital. What? What? Never has a threat been made more clear. And that was why Sherry's parents wrote that letter. And in the interview in 2001, John did mention Stephanie when the police asked him about any females. And John told the detectives in 2001, if the detectives would have asked me about a female in 1986, I would have told them Stephanie right away in a heartbeat. But they they were telling me that they believed this was two men. Yeah, but don't you think that you would say, hey, you know what? Who would hurt her? Right, like, listen. They never asked him. I know, I know. Well, that's a problem. That's an investigative, uh, an investigating issue. You and know, you know, like, in the back of his mind, he didn't want that to be true because it would have meant he was partially responsible. Partially responsible, yeah. So this was big. Bigger than career ending. It was life in prison as an LAPD police officer. Serious. Oof. And because Stephanie was so well-liked, the detectives had to do a really good job keeping the fact that they're conducting this a secret. They also, while they're using all of their code words, they're trying to discreetly collect discarded DNA samples from her. In the police station? Yeah. Oh, my God. But eventually they have to go outside of the police station. Okay. Finally, on May 27th, 2009, the detectives were able to get DNA. They had followed her to a fast food place where they retrieved her soda can from the trash and sent it in for testing. It was a match. Wow. Now that the detectives were armed with this information, they knew they couldn't just request a meeting with her because she was smart and she would plan for it and strategize. They wanted to catch her off guard and get a genuine reaction from her. So in order to do this, they devised a plan. First, they got a warrant for her arrest, obviously. She was still a detective in the art theft division. So they went to her office and told her that there was a suspect in the jail division of the building that she might be interested in speaking to because he had some information about stolen art that might interest her. Oh, man, they really, like, got her good here. Yep. Okay. So the reason they wanted to take her down to the jail division to question her is because once everyone enters the jail division, they have to put their guns in a safety locker. Makes sense. So nothing crazy could happen. They believe this was a good way to catch her off guard, but also make sure this is the safest way possible to do it because they're not sure how she's going to react. So as soon as they bring her into a holding room and begin to question her, she knows something is wrong. 
And we know this because the entire interview with Stephanie is recorded. And I will link the full interrogation video in the show notes. On the tape, you could see Stephanie get immediately flustered and overwhelmed when the detectives start asking her questions about John. They ask her if she remembers him and if she'd ever went to his condo. And she just kept saying, like, that was so long ago. That was ages ago. And she couldn't really remember what had happened. And they asked if she ever visited John's house in a police capacity, obviously alluding to the time she had gone over to intimidate Stephanie. And she said, I really can't remember if I did anything else work-wise, but I did go over to visit John and his girlfriend had been there. She's obviously shocked and scared, but you can tell she's trying to play it cool in the video. They asked her if she remembered what John's girlfriend did for a living, and she said she thought she was a nurse, and then she did admit that she had spoken to Sherry once or twice. So obviously you do remember, is kind of along what the detectives are saying. But again, she keeps trying to say, I don't know, it was so long ago. So while the detectives had Stephanie talking in the jail division of the police station, a warrant had been executed on her home. There, law enforcement was able to find a number of photos of John. Still. Like recent or just like... No, like from when they were together in the 80s. Ew, it's like a weird shrine. Please don't tell me that she still has the marriage certificate. No, but she she still had her diary from the time. Okay. And it was the diary from when her and John had had a sexual relationship all the way up to the point where John had broken up with her and asked Sherry to marry him. So she kept this along with his pictures. So back at the station, they were getting more serious with Stephanie. As the questions kept coming, she was starting to get very defensive. She came out and said to the detectives, basically, I know what you're doing. I know what you're trying to accuse me of. Sherry's murder and they finally asked her for a DNA sample and she said again you're trying to pin this on me I get it you just have to do your job but I'm gonna have to contact somebody and that's when she stood up to leave and the detective surprised her yet again by saying well actually you're under arrest now we already have your DNA and it matched the evidence back at the scene in 1986 they read her her rights And she's brought just down the hall into a holding cell. Perfectly executed. Yeah. She was stunned. Yeah. Because you know what? They probably were afraid of what she would do. Because she would have a weapon on her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't know if she'll try to go out in a blaze of glory or, or like do something crazy. Yeah. They also did want to show some respect for the police force by not having her do the perp walk. She was already down there. So it wasn't like she had that embarrassing walk through the the whole station. I'm surprised that like uh, internal affairs like didn't get involved in this. I think eventually they would have to. Okay. But the higher ups knew what was happening. The people that needed to know knew. Got it. Stephanie's family was obviously shocked by this all. They had no clue that she had been capable of something like that. But it was her diary that gave everyone some insight into her state of mind at the time of the murders. In it, she talked about how she was an emotional wreck when John ended. She found out he was getting married, and she said, this is bad, very bad, and my concentration is a negative 10. And finally, the detectives were able to make a call to Sherry's parents. They couldn't make up for the fact that it 
had really been them who would have caught their daughter's killer decades ago. But they finally did right by her. And they got justice for Sherry, who had been murdered by a jilted ex-lover of her husband. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that they at least apologized to the parents. Yeah. Because, I mean, that, that's insane. It's they, so they, sad. You know, but that's the problem, though, is that, listen, as regular civilians, we know that police and detectives, we know what you guys do, you know? And it's like, I know that there's a process and all that stuff, but, like, one of the biggest things is just understanding the community that you're dealing with and looking out for. If someone comes up to you and has a little bit of information, it might be a breadcrumb and maybe it leads nowhere now, but it might. And yeah. you have to take, you have to write it all down, record it, whatever. Well, I think this is an example of the dangers of getting kind of like horse blinders or one track mind when it comes to investigations. When they had it in their minds that this was a robbery or a burglary gone wrong that led to murder, then that stopped them from thinking about another side of it. I mean, yeah, I mean, that is kind of what happened here. I just hope that everyone kind of learns from this, you know, because it's like there is more to be like looked into on on every case, on every single murder case, there is things that have not been looked into that you probably should. That's true. All the cold cases. Yeah, you have to. And that's a lot of times, but sometimes it takes a fresh eye and a brand new perspective because we see that a lot of times when people go back to cold cases and they look at the file and then they realize, oh my God, look, it's right here. Because when you're in it, sometimes you're lost. Well, that's true. When you have a view from 30,000 feet above, it's a little bit easier. That That is true. But also it has to do with the individual detective because some people might have a better knack for it than others. Or just have enough empathy for the family to look into what they believe. Yes. Like in this situation. Well, Stephanie Lazarus went on trial in 2012. It was a cut and dry motive. Stephanie had thought that John would eventually come around and date her when he was ready to get serious, but he didn't. When he was ready to settle down, he did so with Sherry, and this enraged Stephanie. She was obsessed with John, and she killed Sherry because in her mind, she had stolen him away. Then she used her police training to throw off the investigation and stage the crime like the nearby burglaries, of which she had details that were never released to the press. But what she had not accounted for was the advancement of technology. The DNA was a smoking gun. And thank God, the crime scene techs of the time stored the evidence at the coroner's office. Because if it would have been moved to the police locker of the LAPD, Stephanie most likely would have had it destroyed somehow. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Wow, yes, she could have tampered with any of that evidence because she knew it was going to be there. Right. I mean, she knew that it would be there from the very beginning. And because it was not there, she probably felt like she was safe. Right. Oh, they probably just lost it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yes. This was unbelievable. Okay. So during the trial, John spoke about how guilty he felt about being the reason that Sherry had been murdered. He was very emotional on the stand. He said the fact that Sherry was murdered because she met and married me 
brings me to my knees. I do not know and fear I will ever know how to cope with this appalling fact. I've resigned myself to pray for a measure of peace and try to endure the daydreams about a world where Sherry is still with us. Now, John had remarried since Sherry's murder, but he said that he never gotten over her. And his new wife always knew that. Well, I mean, how, how could you really, you know? Yeah. I mean, you lost somebody that you loved and you feel responsible for it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there is just stuff there that you can't really unpack. That's true. It's hard. The trial lasted for five weeks, and it only took the jury two hours of deliberations to find her guilty. Stephanie was sentenced to 27 years to life for the murder she had committed 27 years prior. I mean, she's where she belongs. And I can imagine she has to be in some type of protective custody because she had been a police officer for so long. Yeah, there's no way that she could be in gem pop. I mean, I don't think so anyway. Crazy. How wild is that? This case, I can't believe I've never even heard of it before. This should be like a movie. I know. Not to take away from the fact that Sherry's, you know, was murdered, but it's just what a case though you know it's you know there's so much involved so many moving yeah like how has this not been taken on yeah like so many moving parts but i am very sad for sherry's family but i am glad that at least the mother and father were finally listened to they were heard um and they you know they were what they had to say was taken under advisement you know like it took it's a long time good. but finally they were listened to right because how I many how many years go by and you just feel like you were not taking care of the right way. Their job is to protect and serve and listen and take care of the community, and they didn't even do nothing for us. But how frustrating that the whole time, this cold case, the answer was in a letter from the victim's parents. Yeah. Well, that's hey, listen, that's just called intuition right there. Yeah. They knew that something was up. So sad. It is sad. But I'm glad. I can't believe you freaking got it. That, babe, I... I was I was using <laughs> listen, I was scraping the last two brain cells I have as hard as I can to figure that one out. Well, you got it. That got was it. I mean, we were making a fire, you know, with my two brain cells. We were going well, firing on all two cylinders. <laughs> okay. Well, before we go, we want to say thank you to our new supporters on Patreon. And if you want two bonus episodes a month, you could join us at patreon.com slash true crime couple, where you also if you join at the the $5 level is where you get the two bonus episodes and a sticker. And at the $10 level, you get also in addition to that, a special John episode. And we do date night once a month where we watch like a true crime show in real time with you all. And it's a wonderful date night. So if you want to join us on Patreon, please feel free to do so. And we want to thank those of you that have already done it. So thank you, Melinda Sandwick, Britt, Sue Lewis, Katie Mary, Abby Treese, Nathan Wilcoxon, Lily Burke, Lily Cash Bushel, Nancy Essinger, Sammy, Heather Gordon, Kimber Wayne, Allie, Val Sprong, Brianna N., Julie Moscovina, Terry Apkin, Stacy Struthers, Amy Yu, Nikki Ivacini, 
Caitlin Swick, Stephanie Ramborger, Ashley Miller, H. Pryor, Shivanti Anderson, Anari, Carrie Rend, Abby Jalot, Sandrine, Chastity Clark, Laura Johnson, Alyssa Rose Kopakonen, Jemmy Kayani, Megan Hall, Jaquita Dean, Teresa Whitney, Mary, Carrie Blankenship, Ruby Lemus, Samantha Martini, Vanessa Foley, Ivy Jewell, and Courtney Parkin. Thanks so much for joining Patreon, and we hope you're enjoying all of the bonus episodes. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.